Hello and welcome to a very special Rangers Review interview. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today I'm joined by author and historian Martin Ramsey to talk about his new book, Revolution 1986 to 1992. Martin, welcome. Thank you, Johnny. Good to be on and for the illustrious welcome there. I could get used to that. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here, mate. Um, I think uh, anyone who's been on the Rangers Review website for the last year and a half will be uh, well aware just how good a writer you are and what they might be able to be expecting from this book. And having read it, I think it, it definitely lives up to my expectations and they were pretty lofty. So um, I would advise anyone out there to get their hands on this. And uh, I'm going to stick a link into the comments there so you can get fired in and get one ordered up um, because uh, when this book comes out on the 14th of March, I think you're going to want it to have it in your hot little hands. Um, but listen, I'm not going to continue with the platitudes. We're going to talk about this book and we're going to drill into some of the themes and some of the detail because it's fascinating, Martin. It's absolutely fascinating, very thought-provoking. And there's a lot of things I think we should touch on from, from the media um, to the culture and trying to contextualise some of the things that have been brought up um, in this book. And I think this will probably drive a lot of debate within the Rangers' support, and presumably that's what you were hoping for, um, certainly with some of the chapters. Me? Um, certainly not. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, um, it, it is this this period of, of, of Rangers' history. Uh, it's the first of, of two books, the second one hopefully about for Christmas, which does um, 92 to 98. So this huge, rich period of, of, of Rangers, the greatest era, really. Um, and if if you are plugged into Stephen Miller's accounts, any of them on, on any, um, any social media platform, you will see something from this era every single day, probably. Um, and yet, as we found doing the... The, the podcast series dominant and over in heart and hands, you know, that covered this whole time. It's maybe not as well remembered or as well understood um, as we maybe like to think. And that, that was, that was the greatest challenge. And the, the, the greatest reward I think from, from doing it was, was to start contextualizing a, a, a lot more of this because uh, it's very broad brushstrokes. I think our, our history of it and our, our memory of it, I think. Yeah, the way it erodes in the collective memory is quite interesting, and that's one of the themes of the book. Um, I hate to go a bit Mrs. Merton on you, uh, Martin, but I think it's it's needed. You know, you're, you're of a certain age, I think, whereby this was obviously an era that absolutely captured you in your very soul. Uh, and it's a little bit like, what attracted you to the millionaire Paul Daniels, to David McGee? <laughs> you know? Um, so I assume that this was an almost soul-capturing series of events for you as a young lad, and it really captured your imagination. And that sort of sense of, of the vivid reality of living such a successful and captivating period has made a, a strong impression on you as a person as much as anything else. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> I've mentioned this a few times. Uh, I, I'm the luckiest or part of the luckiest Rangers generation there has ever been because... Well, I, I would certainly argue, even though we still take it very seriously in, in adulthood, hence why we're sitting here on a Saturday morning talking about it still and do it every day, um, it's still not as um, all-encompassing as when you're a 
you're a kid and when you're, you're, you're growing up, you, you don't have perspective when you're 10, 12, whatever. Um, there's no exams yet. There's no kids or careers or mortgages and marriages and sex, drugs, rock and roll. All that's still very much in the future. So it's really just the Rangers. And I was, a lot of my pals were, I'm sure you were as well, just obsessive about the detail. Uh, you just you absorbed everything in. Uh, and so those highs and lows were uh, more impactful. And there were lows, obviously. I mean, the, the, it, it wasn't it wasn't just this procession all the time. And I think that's one of the, the interesting things about, about doing this. It was chaotic. Um, however, uh, my first memory of Rangers literally was the arrival of of Graham Sinus. That, that that's that's as far back as I can I can really go. Uh, and I was seventeen and a half years old before I knew how it felt for a season to end and Rangers not to win a trophy. And that that that's your whole childhood and adolescence just enjoying success and therefore expecting that this is what football is and what Rangers is. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a double-edged sword, I guess. Yeah, I wonder what impact that's going to have on this next generation of Rangers fans that we are now the fathers of kids, yeah. but largely... Men our age who who went through this, um, who are going through their own epoch, a very different one, and the alignment of these different experiences and how it reflects and changes and shapes Rangers supporters of the future. I think it's going to be a very interesting next few years on that yeah. basis. I think we're already seeing on social media the 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 beginnings, the flowerings of some quite interesting. Uh, societal elements around the Rangers support based on this kind of dichotomy of a generation like us that were so lucky to experience so much success for so long and then a generation who's who's n now come along that, that haven't. And I mentioned the Stephen Miller thing. They're, they're constantly reminded that this is, yeah. this is what Rangers really is. This is what Rangers really is about. And this is what history does, I guess. Well, is it? the Rangers, the, the, the dominant team in Scottish football, the most successful team, blah, 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 um, 55 league titles and all of that. A lot of that is because of this era and Struth's era, which is a bygone age that, that no one has any real touchstone to. Um, and those are, those are two very kind of separate um, concentrated periods. Of course, there, there were other great Rangers teams, but... Um, a lot of that, that that feeling of superiority is 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 kind of made up by that. And what was interesting um, when when doing the research around 1991, I think um, Mark Dingle was was writing in Follow Follow uh, about Celtic fans complaining that they had uh, they'd gone just um, a season or two without success. And it's kind of oh God, love them. Imagine going through that. Um, how about going through five? How about going through the, the, the ten years that that, that that you know we had just you know, kind of going through before Sunnis. Um And it was quite spiky and underdoggy and, and and not really Rangers. But by the end of this period, of course, that, that feeling of superiority is is, is re-infused and it's it's just that, 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 yeah, this is what we do. That's been a long time now. And I, I, I do wonder, and I, I do pick up that tension um, online uh, with a generation who are desperate to experience what, what we did. Yeah. And what, what we say Rangers 
you know, should be what Rangers is. Um, and it's, yeah, it's quite a tension. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, one of the themes that really grabbed me throughout, uh, particularly in the early chapters, was the notion that we always make history inevitable after the fact. There's a great quote from John Gregg, I think it's 1985 or 1986, when he talks about the cyclical nature of Scottish football. And I've heard that kind of sentiment, that kind of mentality over and over again. And it's easy to ascribe that narrative now looking back. And to be fair to John Gregg, you know, he was making it in the moment. But you point out, and I think you're of the opinion that that's too easy. I think the book does show that, that none of this was inevitable in 1986. It could have been derailed. And there was a lot of factors that went towards a success that perhaps are a little bit unheralded. But just on that inevitability of history after the fact, what are your thoughts? Uh, the big wheel, isn't it? Um, no, I, I don't. I don't subscribe to it completely anyway. Um, given the size of the club and given there's only two clubs in, in this country anyway of that kind of size, I understand how why that is so seductive and why people, that, that makes sense. You know, you, you have your time and that will come again. And uh, just because it's sporting gravity, Johnny, I mean, what, what goes up has to come down and, and, and Celtic at this minute in time, that, that, that can't last forever so the chances are that the Rangers will be the the the, the club kind of waiting and ready to, to to take on that that mantle at some point but you still have to get your decisions right <clears throat> and certainly in 1986 Rangers the idea that, that it, you're just kind of waiting for your time in the sun and all you have to do is just be there I think is the the illusory part um, yeah. there were other clubs in the mix at that time because Scottish football allowed other clubs to be in the mix and what Rangers did and the way that this revolution was um, created and executed meant that, that that well that disappeared actually. Those other clubs have never really had much of a sniff um, since then. Um, the, the prologue to the book is, is quite big actually, but I felt it really, really important that you get these three things that, that had to happen for this to, to look at least look the way it did. Rangers would always, I think, there's some inevitability about Rangers, you know, winning a title or winning a few. Um, but the ten years, twelve years that, that that followed, no, I don't think there was anything inevitable about that. Um, and it was Heisel, or sorry, it was UEFA's response to Heisel, keeping that open ended, not making it fixed, and they would just review it every year, which creates uncertainty upon more uncertainty, which Rangers could exploit. Um, it was the the board, this internecine bickering for years and years, and, and uh, with these kind of competing blocks of relatively equal power, and Celtic had that too. That that's what would really cause Celtic problems getting into the nineties with these family blocks. You have no dynamism. There's no uh, no freedom really. A deal gets done, and Lawrence Marlborough becomes the the first, uh, you know, majority shareholder, um, and can then just entrust this chief exec David Holmes with this power. Just go and go and do it, and go and do it was was the thing. This absolute dynamism, um, and Liverpool. Given Kenny Douglas the player manager, the player manager in 1985 was 
it was something that, that old pros did just to, to bridge a gap somewhere. You know, Johnny Giles, I think, was the, the, the player manager of West Brom in the 70s. It was it was a kind of old, outdated, uh, yeah, old-fashioned thing. Well, it was not for a club the size of Liverpool to do, and yet they did. And anything that Liverpool did in 85, 86 was kind of as much of a guarantee of success in football as you possibly get. So, you know, David Holmes said it, it came to him in a dream. Other fans had, had kind of suggested it as well. Why don't you, you know, why don't we get Graham Souness to do that? That doesn't arrive unless Kenny Douglas is, is winning a double with or on his way to win a double with, with, with Liverpool. So these three things, for example, have to be in place for what what, what happens. But but Rangers had to grab it. They, they had to be ambitious. They had to have vision. And they had to, to show a lot of courage, not just to chip away and, and, and win the odd thing, but just to completely change the rules. Uh, and that's that's what they did. I thought that quote from Graham Souness, I think it was in the Only a Game documentary, was remarkable that he would like to become Rangers manager. I'd never heard that before. Martin, it's completely passed me by. I, I don't know how, because it seems quite an important one. Yeah. Uh, and really, really interesting that he was almost, because Souness is a smart guy, you know, he's kind of laying the idea out ahead of time, isn't he? Well, I, I guess he is. I think it was a throwaway. This was recorded in uh, in Cardiff in September '85, before that ill-fated qualifier that that, that Jockstein um, died at. Uh, and it was about money, really. It was about professionalism and why Sunnis had never played in Scotland. It was it was a part of a series. Uh, but that series was never aired until the May of '86. It was it was before the, the run up to the, the Mexico World Cup, so no one had seen it. It wasn't going out in autumn '85. But yeah, it's obviously in, in his his mind, and again, only because his pals do it. And well, I want to to do that as well. And there's just there's there's no way that 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 thing enters anyone's head if Liverpool haven't haven't done it already. I don't think. With Dalglish, yeah. they're friends, but there's always one of them, shouldn't they? You mentioned David Holmes, and to me, that's one of the best parts of the book. I really like that this figure from Rangers history has really been given his his place in the pantheon, and you really give a strong idea of how big a part he is in the change that takes place and in the drive for modernity, and a lot of that is undoubtedly, I think, to do with the way he managed the club and, and, and what he brought to the club. Um, wh- why do you think David Holmes is a figure that's kind of fallen out almost of the narrative to some extent? And and do you believe that statement I've just made is actually fair? That you've placed him back into the narrative? Well, I hope so. He shouldn't have been out of it. But he doesn't, unlike his um, successor, for example, did not seek the limelight. He, he, I think he enjoyed it a wee bit more than he professed he did, but he certainly didn't seek it out. It wasn't what he lived for. Uh, he actually preferred being chief exec rather than eventually moving up to chairman because it, it meant more of that front-facing, public-facing thing. Um, so that that's, that's really why. Uh, but Johnny... It's only 10, 15 years ago, it was common to read on message boards or maybe on, on social media that, you know, 
David Murray brought Graham Souness to Rangers, for example. <laughs> that that absolute myth, uh, which obviously wasn't wasn't true. And it, it, Holmes, <clears throat> this kind of gentle, quieter guy, in comparison, certainly comparison to Souness and, and, and Murray after him, um, just didn't go and kind of grab that himself and that, that that's a real shame but that's the way the media works as you as you know but it is a story that, that that needs to be told more he was first in last out his car would be there at six o'clock in the morning for example um tirelessly thinking of, of new ways to increase revenue you know literally himself Campbell Ogilvy I think Freddie Fletcher just looking at the main stand uh you know Building plans. How can we, how can we get a hospitality suite in here? None of them were architects, but the three of them just, you know, sketching out bits and pieces, um, and and so it became, and and in, in a way that that we've not, we'd never seen in Scotland before. Not, not to that, not to that level, not to that extent. Uh, just being pre- just being prepared to do things a hell of a different. The wage cap, for example. So about 350 quid a week, Ali McCoist would have been on. The reserves were not on much less than that. So it kept a real tight cold display, you know. Uh, and, you know, ripping it up for soonest, first of all. Then, of course, you know, butchering woods. And uh, it was it was just vision and ambition that uh, this is how you've done it. Well, that, that, that really hasn't worked for us. And... And the family atmosphere, people talk about that quite a lot, that, that, that him and Betty would be in that hospitality suite every week, talking to everybody. Uh, the, the players would would feel part of, of something, their wives feel part of something, there'd be a crash at Ibrooks during, during the week. Um, and when they won that first League Cup, that first Skull Cup, uh, everybody was back, every employee was was back at Ibrooks to, to, to celebrate. So that, that, that was... That was him. That that was creating something that uh, it, it, things hadn't been done done well. I think it's fair to say, Johnny, before uh, yeah. before yeah, he he arrived, and it, it got stale and it got very lazy and just scrappy, and that that was not a word uh, I think you could associate with with David Holmes. You mentioned uh, the guy who went on to take over from him, and it's really interesting from a historical point of view. This book is covering a period where David Murray essentially walked on water, certainly from the outside looking in. If you had criticised David Murray openly in a newspaper article, and you talk about quite very, very interestingly about some of the articles that were coming out at the time, and we can drill into the detail on that as as we progress in this discussion. Um, But if you were to have criticised David Murray in those days, uh, you would have... uh, been very isolated, I would I would suggest, because he created a culture around them. How difficult was it from a historical point of view to try and go back and look at Murray in an extremely balanced light, given what we know now, maybe putting in the seeds of what was to come, but given the perception of him at that time was so vastly different to perhaps how we view it now? Uh... I don't think it was particularly difficult. The seeds, yeah, I think that that, that was something I was interested in. We, we know how this particular story ends. That's not my story. That, you know, my story ends yeah. in, in 98. But 
other warnings, and there were, <clears throat> as that corporate governance disappears and disappears and disappears. Um, and I think Campbell really talked about pre-homes, uh, there would be a, a, a board meeting every week and the agenda would hardly change and it was very officious and it was very stodgy, but they had to have it on a Tuesday and, and it was just just that, that, that form for the sake of it kind of thing. And you get to the end where Murray's telling, <clears throat> you know, the Scotland and Sunday or whatever, yeah, you know, we have a board meeting when we need to, but, you know, we see each other at, at games. If something needs to be done, someone phones and we, you know, we, we, we sort it out, uh, which is, of course, irresponsible. You have this great balance, I think, between Holmes and early Murray where there is dynamism and there's ambition, but it's rooted in reality, for a start, about where, where Rangers are, where Rangers can go. Uh, and it is accountable, and it, it, it is done kind of properly. And you're right. The what is important because we we do know how this story ends, but it's important to know that it wasn't always like that. And history's full of stories of that nature, where 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 someone looks kind of godlike, and they eventually become very very human indeed. And uh, but what what interests me was even even in Fall of Fall, some of the most vociferous critics of money. The, 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 that would, they would be the, the, the most vociferous critics as the the twenty first century dawned, and there are there is criticism of them throughout, but it's always always backed by he's still one of the best things to happen to Rangers, and these are people who who would go on to to absolutely lambast them and protest and whatever, and are are criticising here, but they feel still the need even by ninety seven ninety eight they still feel the need to say but. He's one of the best things that's that's ever happened to the club, uh, because he was still the public face of of a, of a club anyway that was that was operating well. He's still bringing you know, he's still convincing people in nineteen ninety seven to give Rangers forty million quid. We're still doing sponsorship deals with Nike that are eleven twelve million pounds, and well, I why why would fans why would fans ask? too many questions when it's been successfully, you know, uh, used at that time. Yeah, to jump back a little bit in the sort of narrative, I just want to look at the hurricane that was Graham Sunnis in 1986 and try and place it in a sense of time because I think now it's quite difficult if you weren't there to fully understand the aura and personality of Graham Souness, especially if you've grown up watching him on Sky. He's a little bit of an older gentleman now. When he was in his early 30s, when he arrived at Rangers, there was something of the Hollywood star about Graham Souness. I think the book really captures. Hopefully people read it and start to get a sense of just how big a deal Souness was when he walked into a room. Yeah. You say Hollywood star there, Johnny. I mean, it's it's Tom Selleck. I mean, he is Magnum PI. He, he, he pretty much looked like that at the time. Yeah, I don't think even with Stephen Gerrard, Walter had his own thing going on. Uh, I mean, Brendan Rodgers, I suppose, had a, a kind of charisma about. I don't think Scottish football scene, and as a, as a manager, anyway, anything remotely 
close to to, to Sunas in that 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 kind of um, aura and impact and and, and power uh, coming through the room. And it was this: there was a point where Sunas was player, manager, and director. He he'd, he'd invested six hundred grand of his own money into Rangers, and it was this very. Typical late eighties South East of England force of nature. I can do everything, and I will do everything, and I will do everything really, really well. You know, lunches for wimps, four hours sleep a night will do. That 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 kind of that that kind of attitude. Gordon uh, Gecko stylings. Yeah, very much. But it, force of nature is pretty much how you would describe him. Uh, he wasn't the best football manager. His, his career would would go on, I think, to, to show that. Walter Smith was a, a better manager. I think that's I don't think that's particularly controversial. But uh again at the perfect opportunity, and this is the other thing that I hope the book comes through, that you, you can't go back in history and just lift uh archetypes like that and say, Oh, we need we need that because that was successful. What well, was successful then at that particular moment in time where Rangers really couldn't go much lower for the, the, the state of play uh, at the time uh, and needed, absolutely needed that that force of nature. They needed someone who, who would just accept no other point of view, really. Such single-minded focus. It's interesting uh, to me that more generally, Martin, the club has been successful with those type of characters at the helm and what that well, says about the club itself. I, I well, I noticed last year when Geo was doing okay uh, that actually I think we 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 kind of flip from that fire of Sunnis to something a bit more reserved in Walter Smith. Oh, he's been too lax though, and in, in, in discipline's dreadful. We need the disciplinarian again. We need the little general, and, and we get advocate who was great, and then set fire to everything. And well, what do you need? Do you need someone who's just a great man manager and a bit of cool? So you bring McLeish in, and then. We get to stage. No, we, we need a figurehead. We need someone who's really going to uh, rip this up, Stephen Gerrard, and then someone just a wee bit calmer, a wee bit cooler. So we 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 have tended to kind of switch from that, and because the reality is, you, the situation probably calls for the two things at, at, at various times. One thing I would say about Sunnis uh, and and his defence, uh, in terms of his his managerial talent and, and, and career. One thing that he was kind of derided on after he left Rangers was his his uh, signings and his, his his record in the, the transfer market. Famously, the uh, Ali Dai from you know the George Weah's cousin that you get told on the phone and whatever. His record at Rangers is superb. Things didn't work out; they went for profit usually. Uh, the, the big signings, the, the two he was very unlucky with, because that's over in, in, in West, but he's, he's, his big ones paid off. Uh, and what he was also good at was just getting someone in, do a job, great, move on. Uh, and I don't know whether, how that disappeared, whether the market disappeared, uh, I'm not sure. But but that, that was, uh, if you... You chose your, your best 11 of, of Sunnis and Sainz compared to Walters. Uh, I think he would, I think he'd be hard to beat. Yeah. Um, I thought it was fascinating again that you 
look at Sunis through a sort of Thatcherite lens, which is interesting to me, especially because a few years ago I made a, a podcast about Sunis and Aggie Moffat, that famous incident at McDermott Park, which you, you obviously touch on in, as well in the book. And I always thought wider Scotland looked at that through a lens of Thatcherism versus traditional Labour values. So it was interesting to hear from a Rangers perspective uh, a look back at, at, at that idea as opposed to from a negative perspective. Um, I just wonder if you could kind of touch on that and, and, and your feelings on it. This was one of the most interesting uh, chapters of the the book actually uh, f- for me as a as, as a writer and just researching and, and, and whatever. Sunnis was unashamed Thatcher. He, he did not hide that. He and that's why um, at Rangers sitting in Liverpool, you know, Glasgow and Liverpool, not hotbeds of Thatcherism. It's probably fair to say. Uh, but even within Scotland, he was respected, not loved. Uh, I think that's that that's probably fair. Even even at Liverpool, I don't think he was. Completely loved. Douglas would have been, uh, because he had that arrogance and and swagger and abrasive ambition. Uh, again, you know, Tina, there is no no other alternative. Um, it's it's me, uh, my way or the highway kind of thing. Uh, so that that was very. There's a really interesting picture, a cartoon in the Evening Times uh, when he arrived, on the day he arrived uh, that, that, that pictured them with this kind of bag of money and IOUs and a, a, a handbook to Scottish football, a list of grounds because he'd obviously never kicked a ball in league club football here uh, and uh, he, he's wearing a Gucci suit and a, a bottle of Brut which apparently was the, the height of uh, cosmopolitanism. <laughs> that made me laugh that made me laugh that uh, And just a badge that says I love me and it was this, it not to be trusted really. This flashy, that, that, that's really what it what it was, wasn't it? Uh, so he was, he absolutely was that. But the revolution was Thatcherite. It was yeah. abrasive. It was ambitious. It was speculate to accumulate. It was built with debt, but responsible debt, and and build it, and they will come because they were not coming at this particular moment. The tendencies were were obviously horrendous. It was ruthless it was uh it, the sacred cows were you know line them up in terms of traditional practices we will we will rip them up we'll rip them up eventually the biggest of course being on the 10th of july 1989 but it was i don't care how you feel about that because this is right and this is the way it has to be in order to be successful so all of that was clear to me anyway i i i, I, I knew that anyway what was interesting was David Holmes's role in that because he was ruthless in the boardroom before all this kind of came about. He was behind all this as, as well, but he's an old Labour man. He toyed with the idea of standing for for council, I think, ostensibly. And it's this ostensible part and the real world that I think that, that tension is really what the 80s is about because it's a hell of a lot more complicated than... Uh, ghost town, uh, you know, or two tribes kind of underscoring the, this whole any documentary you, you you see on it. And going back to the fanzines and reading them all, the, the tensions there right from the start are 
are really, really interesting. This fear and distrust about the fat cats and you the know, camel the, coat brigade, camel coat brigade, which uh, I don't really understand that 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 kind of idea. Is that is that about the, the tan jackets? Yeah, the kind of Arthur Daly, yeah. uh, uh, just 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 businessmen. Really, where, where were you two or three years yeah. ago? Yeah, and more importantly, really, am I still going to get tickets? That's really what that was about. Is a fear that yeah. all of this success will where were these people? But I always get tickets for for any game I wanted when there was only you know when Rangers were garbage. So there was it's such an interesting uh, tension between. Uh, what what's happening to the club? What are we losing here? Do, can you trust these spivs, Barrel Boy spivs, Sunnis and Murray? Uh, and a lot worse. Uh, but they're big in success. Yeah, and and, and that, 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 I think that's a, a kind of fascinating thing. And that's the story really of the country that people would bemoan outwardly bemoan that bloody woman and, and this 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 dreadful government and the, the way the country's going but they are earning more and they have more stuff and you could bemoan the, i don't know the state of british industry and manufacturing and, and, and the economy whilst driving your german car back to watch american sitcoms and you on your japanese television how people lived the choices they made i think a far more telling sign than how they what they say they believe in and how they show that how how they identify themselves that's kind of how we would describe it now and this this whole rangers thing i think is is the 80s in, in microcosm because it's the tory government couldn't have come up with a better application of thatcherism than graham Sunnis and david holmes right on red Clydeside. yeah yeah fascinating um one of the things that I want to drill into, Martin, is obviously as part of the research on this book, you've gone and spent quite a lot of time in the Mitchell Library um, or or on various sites giving you uh, traditional newspapers going back 30, 40 years, obviously. Um, and so much of what was in there really grabbed me from a media point of view, as you might expect. Uh, so forgive the navel-gazing folks, I'm sorry about this, but it, it really does interest me and I'm sure there'll be a lot of a lot of people watching this who who grew up with the papers as a, as a, as a cornerstone of their lives you know in the morning it certainly was something that 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 was a big part of mine and uh, I just want to touch on a couple of things um there's a load of unbelievable quotes um this one really grabbed me from Alan Davison in an evening times match report uh, talking about Celtic Rangers game said to the victors, the spoils, to the losers, a sense of injustice that has hovered over them like some maiden ant for the best part of a century. That that's a wonderful bit of writing more than anything else. Acute, piercing, um, but but also thought provoking. Um what did you think going back looking at the journalism of yesteryear? Because I've I've quite strong feelings on this because the current journalists coming through they often get this sense of being battered around the head by what journalism used to be. We were all, you know, going through the papers every morning and consuming it so passionately. It's a, it's a, it's a different world that we live in now, and, and the media is so very, very different to those times. But those guys really could write, couldn't they? Or a lot of them could. Yeah, you had a turn of phrase that was a, a bit more... In- it was it was well crafted. I'm not sure you see that now. Don't don't get me wrong. There, there were others 
or the, the yeah, there were others at the time who who spoke in tabloid English. I think just yeah. I imagine just on, on a daily basis. It's, it's it's hilarious how they they framed conversations with with players because there's no way Chris Woods gave you that quote. There's no way he spoke like that. Check, come on. Um, but there there were others that that uh that, yeah you, you mentioned um and that that quote is. Yeah, the more things change, eh? but the, the, it, the, there there was room for that. All right, I, I think there was there was space, or it appears there was space. Um, a match report was a was a thing because it needed to be a thing, I guess, because well, you would maybe have seen it on sports scene that night uh, or the night before, or you're you're going to see it on Scott Sport on tea time or at tea time on the Sunday, uh, but you you know. Unless you were there, you're not seeing the nine minutes really. So it was important to convey, and not just convey the action, but to convey something a bit bigger than that. I'm not sure that's. I'm not. I am sure that's not the case anymore because we we consume the thing ourselves. We don't need anyone to tell that story. Uh, so maybe maybe there's a lost art because there's not the necessity. I don't know. Yeah, look, I I spent some time for a project looking back at um some old copies of the Daily Record for over over a period in the 80s and the 90s. And uh, it was always fascinating working in that building. You could go down to the archive room and just go through it. And I would find myself lost, go down for half an hour and then end up being down there for two and a half hours. I'll have a look at the mid-90s or I'll have a look at the uh, late 80s. And um, one of the things that struck me looking back at the Daily Record on the day that Morris Johnson signed for Rangers was how little actual copy there was in these papers. Because now they feel that they have to pack papers out with content to make them good value, to, to encourage people to feel like, oh, Christ, I better keep reading this thing. Whereas back then, they didn't have to do that. So I think the Daily Record, if my memory serves me correct, had four pages at front of book about Morris Johnson and four pages at the back. If that happened today, it's similar. I mean, you, you can't actually, there's no modern uh, example where it would be similar but still to only have eight pages on something like that I mean it would be 25 pages and for me it was a big lesson in just how different things are when you've also got maybe one tenth of the staff that the Daily Record would have had in those days um, fascinating differences in the landscape yeah there's a lot of changes uh, so you're you're Argument was that in terms of the, the the quotes from that that particular press conference that that that, that there was hardly anything really there. It was, so it was it was more commentary. Uh, no, so it wasn't the day of the press conference. It was the day when it was um, it was now. No, sorry, I'm I'm getting myself mixed up here. The the presser was maybe a spread, so it was like maybe one one article. But yeah. in terms of the rest, like the fallout, the reaction, it was very very little. It was just yeah. basic. Um, hotline reaction, but but I suppose what I'm trying to say is the expectations in the 24-hour media age are vastly different. And in journal, from a journalistic point of view, you've got much less staff to do much more content. Yeah. So part of that thing I was talking about, about like Alan uh, Davison being a wordsmith, they had time to work on their craft in those days. That They didn't have a lot to do. So um, that's that's so less is more a major part of it, but less, less is more. more. Yeah, and and I would I would 
wholeheartedly uh, agree with that. Um, and even now, we're, we're sounding very much like two old men, Johnny. But <laughs> we're, we're, you know, you're you're providing a, a platform here. That there, 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 of course, are others, but it's fighting against the grain for for long form writing and someone with the time and space to to look at something from a wider lens and uh, in, in a lot more depth and to just you know go off and you know write what write about what, what you want really or or or, or approach a, a current affair uh in a, in, a, in a kind of different way uh and i do worry that because of the the absolute incessant need for you know buying 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 it has to be short and it, 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 you know it has to be there uh that we're we're just selling I think we're selling the market short a wee bit. I think we have we've dumbed down far too much. Uh which when you do then when you do read something, you do read two sentences put together that are uh very nicely done. It it it, it reads like Michael Vanny now because there's it it doesn't get that 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 time and, and space anymore. Yeah. Uh, one of the other aspects that I thought was really interesting was um the way that you weave in the sort of transfer links of the era, the what might have been, I found them particularly tantalising, Martin. Now, a lot of them I'm aware of, a lot of them I've forgotten. And there was one uh, sentence where I think you talked about Rangers being linked with Hoddle, Dixon, Archibald and Sharp. It's essentially the equivalent of Rangers being linked with someone like Foden, Harry Kane. You know, we're talking about <laughs> the absolute creme de la creme. You go on later in the book, there's Pallister, there's other players. Uh, I, th I think when, uh, by the time you get to the second book, you'll be talking about Gianluca Vialli and people like that. It's remarkable compared to today, just the level of possibility that existed around Rangers. And I suppose that's the joy of, of writing this. It was. I mean, I think we even, as I say, even fans knew that, that, that Italy was... At a different level, we weren't we weren't really going to reach that. We we're simply going to reach it uh, instantly, but everything else was was pretty much fair game, especially England. And what I hope I've conveyed, because it was genuine around certainly this book and this this particular era, uh, and certainly the start of this particular era, was that it, it was felt that Rangers could sign anybody and win anything and it wasn't that we could win the European Cup it was we will this is what's what what's what's in the plan this is what, what's 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 going to happen and that level of excitement after 10 years or whatever uh, or nine years of very much the opposite and I think Jock Wallace's transfer targets for if he'd been kept on in the summer of 86 would have been uh, Gordon Jury, John Brown, who, you know, obviously went on to be um, stalwarts, but was still quite young at the time. And Craig Levine, another up-and-coming, young, promising uh, uh, Scottish player. Not Terry Butcher, though, is it? So uh, that, 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 that level of thinking, and Butcher, uh, Woods, of course, was the first, but that just then... It just sparked off this this belief that that this guy, the Rangers were going to operate in a different way. They were they were going to be ambitious. They were going to allow uh, to to use debt in that that way, uh, 
and then you've got a stadium which looks like something nearly the 21st century when your closest rival stadium looks barely out the 19th and you've got this guy this manager who I mean Butcher for example he, he, he met him in London he came back from LA he was playing in the uh, Europe against the rest of the world after the, the, the World Cup I'll meet you there right there was a bit of a, a mix up actually but they, they got together Butcher thought he was just going to have a chat and then go home think about it and soon as had him on a plane up to Edinburgh. He didn't even get a chance to go home to the family. Uh, up to Edinburgh, across to the stadium. He wanted to show him this, this place. And that kind of charisma, all of these things, and English, well, what can English clubs offer apart from tradition? Because they can't offer European football. Right, the world's an oyster now. It really is a, right, everything is aligning. And hopefully I've, I've, I've just, I've captured that excitement because excitement is what it, what it was. I can't, Maybe I can't express it enough. That 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 really there has never been a time like it for Rangers anyway. No, I think you certainly do capture that. Um just final point on on the media, and I think this kind of brings it back into today in a way. One of the uh, stories you talk about in, in the chapter where you kind of focus a little bit more on the, the media of the time. You talk about some of the characters that were around there. Um is Jerry McNee. And the fact that he sort of dehumanised Paul Gascoigne to the point that he just refused to call him by his name and referred to him as number eight. Um, and then you contrast that um, by talking about the the famous commentary that McNee did on the, the eight-in-a-row clincher against Aberdeen at Ibrox, the 3-1 game where Gaza grabbed the hat-trick. I think you your quote is that his, his commentary is passionate and energised. I wondered... Given that you say that it was almost as if it was all it was an act, it was all an act. I wonder if you think that it's interesting that football culture, a quarter of the century on, we still have pundits who are kind of following this similar trajectory. I would say I think you're right about that about the about the act element to it, about the theatre of it, and I think that's fine in 1990 whatever it was, 1996. Um, but we're now in 2023, and I just wondered if you feel that that's an interesting and valid comparison to make. I think it is. I mean, it's, I don't think it was all an act. McNee didn't like him. I think that, that's fair. Uh, what, what he would do, of course, is call him. Uh, the, the number eight thing uh, actually came about the season after that, but he he would have it in from every. You talk about Gascoigne every every week, uh, with a lot of invective, and he's uh, Sunday Mail uh, column in the morning, and then in the afternoon he's 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 calling a game. Apparently, there's not a hint of uh, dejection or or bitterness. Uh, there was a wee bit at Wembley that summer uh, when he, he was commentating that game for, for STV, but that, that's a different story, but probably understandable. Uh, but w- when he's he, he's calling that game, it, it's it's natural. And there's probably a bit of McNee that he wanted to be the story himself or he wanted to be part of, of history himself. So why would he underplay one of the most famous individual performances you know, we've 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 seen uh, in that kind of moment in Scotland. Uh, so there, there would be a professionalism that they kind of kicked there, but everything's inflated for sure. Uh, you you get a lot of that. Nothing new by that time. I think 
the seventies, eighties guys like like Clough when they were on TV would 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 ham it up. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, you you would get quite up because it's still entertainment, isn't it? It's still and that that's I guess that's the the line you 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 want to cross properly, Johnny. It's uh, it's being entertaining, it's being engaging without being a pantomime, which it, he bordered on. Uh, in fact, he he didn't bother on. He he absolutely jumped straight in with the the, the, the number eight thing, uh, but. Today it's just, it's just it's far too common, far too common up here. I, I I'm not sure if we get it down south. Any time I, I watch coverage of the uh, the Premier League or whatever, there are opinions. I mean, Keane and Sunnis, funnily enough, are, are a wee bit uh, like that. But it, you could see at least a a, a grain in there of of, of, of an argument for, for up here. It's it's still it's that kind of it's a tribal pantomime. Yeah, it's more fringe down there, isn't it? If you yeah. look at someone like Talksport, they'll have people on there that are at yeah. the wind up. But but that's not the absolute mainstream, you know. And Sky Sports, it's much more serious. BT's coverage, much more serious. Yeah. Whereas I think there's a there's a sense up here that the culture needs this. But I think they're feeding the culture. I don't think it's the other way around. Well, this is the. I'm fascinated by this, and I think it's it's maybe a, a topic for another book but I'm fascinated by how we consume the game and that, that, that was one of the, the things wasn't it in, uh, the, the, one of the chapters about how the, the, the changes in how we consume the sport as fans from so little live television to wallpaper everywhere from yeah. the best leagues in the world and therefore how then do we uh, view Rangers as the 1990s goes on, and uh, we're then far more critical because we're, well, you don't look like that. Whereas in 86 to 91 anyway, certainly 92, uh, you're a lot more protected. So how we consume the game has changed. And how does that affect our expectations, our demands, uh, our understanding? And then how does that shape the game in turn? So is there a relationship between how the game is portrayed, how fans... Uh, absorb that, consume that, and then how fans demand, ask, uh, understand what's what's in front of them, and how various different national games have been shaped by that discourse, by that 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 conversation. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, right. We're going to touch on just finally, uh, Martin, because I don't want to uh, keep you here for three hours, but uh, we've we've covered so much, and hopefully people are getting a real idea about what this book is going to be like. Just finally, we can't really finish this conversation without talking about the chapter on Morris Johnson because it's such a, an epoch-defining moment for Scottish football and especially for Rangers. Um, there's obviously some elements to this that we look back on with 2023 eyes and there's no escaping that some elements of it are probably quite difficult now um, with the way modern society has evolved. But there's, there's a lot of context, I think, that you need to give. And I think the chapter does that absolutely brilliantly. How do you feel looking back on it overall, over the coverage, over the idea, and, and over how it shaped the modern Rangers? I think it shaped the modern Rangers in a, in a, different, I think in a different way than we, we, we maybe think. Obviously, did it broke that barrier and it allowed Rangers then access to sign whomever 
they wish the way what we we end the the decade with or the next decade with an Italian treble winning captain, right? Uh, so it's not just pushing that door to a new market ajar; it's, it's blown it off its its hinges. It was the most sensational day in Scottish football history. I think it was Brian Wilson, the the MP, Labour MP, Celtic fan, and he kind of he always had a lot of pressure, understandably, on Rangers to change their policy. And, and he, he asked the question, "What what will the signing kind of do?" For Scottish society, what 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 can that do to 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 improve things? I would have suggested, or I have suggested in the, in the book, that Scottish society had changed. Therefore, this signing could happen. I think that that's the part that, that people missed. If this or a comparable signing was made by Rangers in nineteen fifty nine, there would have been riots. I think there would have been genuine boycotts because that identity was so important, so ingrained. The role of the church, the role of, of religion in people's lives for the first half, first 60 years, maybe the, the, the 20th century Scotland, was so, so, so important that that just couldn't have been accepted. But things had changed. You got a lot of mixed marriage, you got relaxation of employment legislation uh, or improvement of employment legislation. And society's changing to a stage where it's all a wee bit, go back to the, the point earlier, sensational and, and, and uh, pantomime. It's a lot of words, a lot of strong words at the time. And there was a lot of feeling. But again, I go back to the kind of Thatcher point. What did people do? Not what they said, not what noise they made. What did they do? And attendances continue to rise. Rangers continue to be successful. It didn't actually matter. Now, what I th- what the, the modernity that I think that the signing represented actually was that Johnson could have taken an easy way out, could have gone back to Celtic, some bridges to mend. Uh, you know, um, he didn't leave on the best of terms, but I'm sure that could have been done. Uh, and it was a relatively quiet life, blah blah blah. But he chose not to. He chose to endure or, or take on a lot of risk, personal risk, to his safety his family's safety for money and medals. That's a professional football. And the other thing, and this is why we're Rangers, Rangers read the policy or the practice, whatever you want to call it. It was legally wrong and, and, and morally wrong. Uh, but where Rangers could kind of defend it was on a pragmatic basis. Okay, we, we, we could sign a Roman Catholic, we could have signed lots of them. But are they really going to want to play for Rangers? Really? I mean, there's one thing signing a player, and there's one thing that that player playing well uh, or giving the all. And, and you know Rangers, Johnny, as well as I do. Effort is valued pretty much above all else, right? But Johnson gave everything for at least those two seasons, the first two seasons. And that's the modernity, that's the professional. All that noise, all that, all these imagined communities and, and, and imagined sensationalism and, and controversy. Where can I earn more? I want to come up with Scotland, which is what he did. He wanted to, to come back with his family. Where am I going to earn more? Where am I going to win more? That suits me. I'll sign that and I will give everything. This is a guy who a couple of years ago had written how much he hated Rangers. 
He's a Celtic man through and through. It's all nonsense. It's all, it's all garbage. It is about sheer cold-blooded professionalism. And that's what the 1990s were going to be about. And that's what the Johnson thing symbolised more than anything else. Uh, and it just symbolised that Rangers, again, were modernising. Not about that kind of baggage, although, of course, it was important. But we will sign. I don't care. Are they good for us? Will they do as a turn? Are they worth the money? We'll pay it. And I don't Martin, care how you feel about it. We're paying it. Sorry, I'm interrupting you there. Martin, thank you very much for uh, your input today. It's been fascinating to talk about this book. You tell us a little bit about where it is available because I could, I, I will put obviously a link into the description, etc., for people if they can go. But uh, I'm assuming it's available for a number of outlets and uh, when it's out. It'll be out on the 14th of March. It'll be available everywhere. You find your books. It'll be on Kindle as well or, or, or ebook, however you uh, do that. If you do do that, uh, it is available at the moment for pre-sale uh, on heartland.co.uk forward slash revolution. So if you wish a signed copy, uh, then or you, you, you want to have that, that pre-order and get it for the 14th, then that's where to get it. Uh, but yeah, where you normally get your stuff. But help a, help an author out and, and buy direct would be would be my, my request. But um, yeah, I hope you do buy it. I hope you, more importantly, you enjoy it and think maybe a wee bit differently about this incredible time in, in Rangers history. And of course, part two yeah. will be coming in time for Hopefully Christmas. Hopefully for Christmas. I've, I've done, uh, there's about 110,000 words done. So the main part of it is done. I've just got those six kind of smaller chapters to start writing, hopefully finish by May um, and hopefully finish or think of a title. 112,000 words, no problem. Thinking of one, one or two is a wee bit more difficult. Um, the second Second act is is harder to distill than the first one. Um, for all the chaos, Johnny, you've you've read it. It seems like some drama every week in this period. But I think you can make that narrative thread that Rangers pushing forward and horizons, new horizons, barriers being smashed. Everything can be can be done. Rangers absolutely streaming forward. The second part, uh, you've got the same amount of trophies, same amount of titles, greatest ever season. Two of the greatest players, if not the two greatest players ever to play for Rangers, the famous nine in a row, all of this, but this feeling that there's a bigger party elsewhere, there's bigger revolutions that have taken place, and Rangers aren't quite part of that. And how how does this feel? And that 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 tension of looking more insular and looking back the way, which is of course what we did to try and match what Celtic did before. There's a, a hint of of turning back rather than pushing forward, and that's. More interesting, but it's hard to, to distill. So still a wee bit of work to be done, but hopefully for Christmas. Fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to that. I'm sure this is going to be a roaring success. I absolutely loved it. So congratulations. It's, it's a really, really fine piece of work, and I think it's going to be seminal when it comes to how people look back on this period. So thanks very much to Martin Ramsey. Thank you all for watching. Obviously, you have the link in the description. I've stuck that in there if you want to go and pre-order the book. Uh, and you know you can get it uh, everywhere when it does come out. So once again, thanks for everyone. Thanks to Martin, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.